0: You're listening to episode 71 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. This episode is focused on the impact COVID-19 will have on both developing countries and the aid and development sector. As we go to air today, the number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the Pacific continues to rise. Fiji has five confirmed cases and PNG and Timor-Leste have at least one. Aniwatu, the Solomon Islands, Tonga and Samoa are yet to confirm any cases. Countries such as Guam, French Polynesia and New Caledonia also have a growing number of cases. Whilst we're all being inundated with media coverage on COVID-19, here at Goodwill Hunters we'll be focused on the impact of this pandemic on developing countries and especially our neighbours in the Pacific, PNG, Timor-Leste and Southeast Asia. This week, I spoke on ABC's Radio National Saturday Extra program on the topic of the Pacific and COVID-19. I've included a link to that in the show notes. In today's episode, I'm speaking to Fiona Tarpi and Chris Roche. Fiona Tarpi is the Head of Advocacy for the International Programs Department of the Australian Red Cross. She is also co-chair of ACFID's Development Practice Committee. Chris Roche is the Director of the Institute for Human Security and Social Change at La Trobe University and a Senior Research Partner of the Developmental Leadership Program. Chris and Fiona jointly authored an article for the Dev Policy blog this week titled COVID-19 Localization and Locally Led Development, A Critical Juncture. In sum, the article argued that COVID-19 will force a large-scale transformation of the international development sector, and that this may actually be a good thing for local and international actors in the long term. We've included a link to that article in the show notes, and if you haven't read it yet, I'd suggest you pause this episode right now and have a read, as we refer to it throughout this interview. In the interview, Fiona, Chris and I discuss why a reimagining of the development sector could be a good thing including why restrictions on travel mean that local organisations suddenly have a more critical role to play. We discuss whether the development sector is equipped to work digitally and subsequent to that, whether local organisations and local governments in the Pacific are adequately skilled and resourced to manage this new workload. We also talk about the expected downturn in funding for the international development sector, including both NGOs and contractors before finally discussing what will happen if developing countries, including in the Pacific, need economic bailouts. Lastly, I asked Chris and Fiona whether, given the unprecedented scale of health and economic impacts that COVID-19 is causing, is there any way that developing countries come out of this better than before? I've also written an article on this topic, which I've included in the show notes. We'll continue to bring you coverage of the impact of COVID-19 in our region, as well as for the aid and development sector. If there's anything you'd really like us to address, please get in touch. Dev Policy blog also continues to provide extensive coverage of COVID-19's impacts on aid and international development in the Pacific and in Asia. Check it out at devpolicy.org and subscribe to their daily email and fortnightly digest. We've included a link to the blog in the show notes too. Here's Fiona Tarpy and Chris Roche. At the end of the interview, you'll hear me sharing my own reflections on this episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Enjoy the episode. So, Fiona, we'll start with you. In your article on the Dev Policy blog, you state that a reimagining of the development sector is occurring. COVID-19 is both a humanitarian emergency and an economic emergency, which many say is akin to the Great Depression, and yet you argue that this could be good for international development. It seems to be a counterintuitive argument. Can you explain it to us?
1: So, thanks, Rachel. I think what Chris and I were really trying to do with this blog but think aloud about what this disruption, you know, what this critical juncture might present in terms of new ways of working in international development and new forms of social organisation and in doing so we you know really wanted to separate out what we were saying about the humanitarian impacts of COVID versus you know what we are saying about you know changes in development practice and systems. So certainly from Red Cross perspective from my perspective you know COVID is you know unprecedented tragedy. You know here at Red Cross we're looking at the impacts of COVID across Australia in the Pacific and we're also trying to maintain humanitarian work in, you know, uh, complex crises in Cox's Bazar in Syria. But the reality of the situation is that myself and my colleagues are currently locked up here in our houses and the rules have changed very quickly. And so what we're trying to say is that at this time of, you know, really great disruption, it also provides an opportunity to do a bit of future thinking and recalibrate existing systems and norms. I'm pretty sure that a number of other industries are doing the same as well.
2: I mean, our article is not a prediction about what will happen, who knows what will happen, um, nor do we welcome the fact that the crisis is developing. What we're simply suggesting is that there are likely to be some big changes produced by the pandemic, as the history of large-scale pandemics and other crises suggest, and many of which are going to be awful. So that's not something we deny. But some of the changes that are promoted by this might accelerate changes that have been already proposed by some development researchers, commentators and agencies about the need to shift power more into the hands of local people. And I think at the same time, the pandemic and associated crisis themselves are the result of a broad, if you like, development or social change process that is underinvested in human security, health systems, and emergency preparedness, as well as contributing to greater inequality. So, as such, in my view, any evaluation of such events uh, needs to include a discussion on what might need to be done to address those systemic drivers which have led to their emergence in the first place, and we would argue development agencies, researchers, practitioners need to be part of that conversation advocating for that to happen.
0: The response to this pandemic might be emblematic of weak health systems and a general underpreparedness for a pandemic. And we know that in the Pacific, funding from Australia for health programs has been cut by up to 75% in some countries. So, it's been cut by 75% in Tuvalu. Across the board, I think it's been cut by between 10 and 30%. Are we kind of shining a light on the fact that our investment in health systems in the Pacific hasn't been adequate?
2: Well, well, I think we've certainly seen right around the world that... Health systems strengthening has been uh, arguably underinvested in compared to vertical programs that deal with specific diseases. I'm not saying that they aren't important, but we need both of those things. Um, And I think we can see from the United States that the underinvestment in public health in general is a a major contributing factor uh, to this crisis. Aid is part of that, but it's certainly not. The main part of that. And we've also got to ask questions about the role of governments more broadly, um, the role of civil society more broadly, um, and and the, where we place the value on human well-being as opposed to just economic well-being.
0: It's hard not to detect a note of frustration in your article on how international NGOs have been talking about localization and building local ownership for years, but not necessarily walking the walk. What practical opportunities do you think the current crisis opens up for building local ownership? And broadly
1: for a reinvention of the international development sector? Thanks, Rachel. Yes, you've probably detected more than an element of frustration (laughs) in that article um, in our work At Australian Red Cross has been really looking at how we can support greater localization of humanitarian action. You know, since uh, 2016, Um, and you know the commitments that all of us, you know, international uh, NGOs uh, donors have signed on around. The grand bargain and we've done a lot of research and advocacy to this end you know in Australia with donors in the Pacific and and in Geneva Um, it's changing very slowly so yes it is frustrating Um, but I do think again at this juncture you know we are starting to see some practical um, opportunities you know Certainly in terms of donor practice and, um, you know, the sort of regimes around program management, you know, we're seeing at a programmatic and operational level, you know, uh, across the board greater uh, recognition of the need for flexibility in terms of financial, contractual and, you know, operational um, approaches, you know, modification to existing plans, et cetera. I wouldn't say we've gone as far as joint risk sharing yet, um, but certainly there's a recognition that, you know, uh, business practices, practice has to be a lot more flexible and, and respond to context a lot more. Um, from ARC's side, you know, we do have – we've been trying to support a localised approach uh, with our partners, you know, for the last uh, a couple of years. So, within that, you know, one of the uh, methods we do that is around core financing of partners. Um, so, I do think, again, this is an opportunity to, you know, really uh, look at that area of core financing and institutional strengthening and look to uh, local, uh, opportunities to, you know, bring in, you know, HR practice, uh, practice support around financial systems as well. And I think, um, at a very practical level, you know, there's obviously a move to remote support, um, from Australia. So, for example, this week in, uh, PNG, you know, we were due to deliver training in Moresby, um, on, you know, health preparedness, um, And that would have typically involved, you know, flying in and Australian health advisors. Um, But what we've done is really um, provided, you know, mentoring and um, online training to key uh, staff within the um, PNG Red Cross and the Ministry of Health. Um, we're there to support them as they roll this training out over the uh, next couple of days, and more broadly, the various range of the packages we've developed around epidemic preparedness. You know, we are moving them all online as we speak to roll out, you know, broadly over the next few weeks as well. I mean, tip of the iceberg, but you are really starting to see, you know, much more peer mentoring, online um, support, um, and you know, and digital forms of engagement.
2: Seven years ago, Andrew Hewitt, who was the CEO of firm uh, when I was there, we wrote an article called The End of the Golden Age of NGOs. Um, it can be found on Dev Policy blog uh, if you want. And we argued in that that there was a change in context for the work of NGOs, which meant uh, that re- reductions in income poverty in countries like China, India, and Vietnam, but also the, the persistence of chronic and absolute poverty meant that they need to be thinking more clearly about their role and the fact that growth of multidimensional inequalities and gender inequality in particular, put a a particular emphasis on their need to address power relations more squarely. And the other thing we said in that is that the, the narrative of how NGOs talk about their work and the role of what we would call, what I would call international cooperation, was not necessarily contributing to an understanding in the Australian public that we're all in this together. This isn't about raising money over here to send over there to make them more like us. It's about a co-investment in solving common challenges. And I think what I would say is that maybe this is an opportunity, given we are all in this together, to be having a narrative that captures that, that explains that, and expands upon it.
0: It sounds as though it's a neo-colonial critique of the development sector. Is that what you had in mind when you wrote that article seven years ago? Uh, in part,
2: uh, but, I mean it's interesting. This year, I've been at uh, four different development conferences: uh, the Leadership for Development conference that we for inclusive development at uh, La Trobe that we we ran, um, the Development Studies Association. Um, the Australasian Aid Conference and the ACFID Conference, and all of them are slightly different in the terms of their audiences. But the Development Studies Association did talk very squarely about decolonization, about indigenization, about um, more radical feminist ways of thinking about relationships uh, in ways that were slightly coded <laughs> at the uh, Latrobe Conference, but when Shilata Butliwala stood up and gave all agencies a bit of a serve in saying if you can't address bullying and power in your own organisations, how do you think you're going to address it more broadly? I think these things do come together, whether we use the words post-development, decolonization, or whether we talk about power relations more squarely. Um, I'm not sure it matters, but I do think power is central to development and we need to be upfront about that.
0: Now, as you stress in the article, the emphasis on foreign experts being physically present may be due to a lack of trust in local counterparts, but your argument is that there is now no alternative and we we have to let go. We know that many Pacific governments are weak and in some cases corrupt and anti-poor. Do you think local organisations and in particular
1: local governments are actually up to the job? So, from this perspective, Rachel, I'm, I'm going to really talk from a humanitarian perspective. You know, it's um, it, Red Cross does play a very particular role in humanitarian action where, you know, we are uh, aiming to, you know, maintain a, a humanitarian space which is independent, impartial and neutral. And so, we don't really go into a critique of government policy, but I did want to highlight that you know, certainly our experience of working in this area of um, crisis response is that Pacific communities are always the first responders. Um, given the geographic spread... Of communities and the physical remoteness um, across the Pacific, local communities and governments are pretty much always the first and main responders. And there's a lot of traditional knowledge within communities about responding to crises. I do think governments and other actors, such as the private sector, have really stepped up um, in the last few years. Um, I also don't think it's a zero-sum game. It's not just ever going to be about local actors. it's more about a rebalancing toward you know, pushing the pendulum towards localization um, and greater power sharing. You know, I do see an ongoing, and important role, critical role for international actors to continue to work in areas of governments, governance, and poverty reduction. But it's about doing this quite differently.
2: So that seems to assume that external aid organisations are up to the job, um, that they are, they know enough, or indeed know more the local people about the language, the culture, the context, the politics, and how local institutions actually function. And it suggests that they are also in a position to effectively hold governments to account. And experience suggests that, A, donors can't really, aren't very successful in holding governments to account, that they can skew accountability away from local citizens towards donors, and as Dan Honig has convincingly
0: argued in his new book, Navigation by Judgment, they can hold people to account in
2: ways that actually undermine program effectiveness. And as Yuan Ang and a great book on how China escaped the poverty trap notes, it's often what might be deemed weak institutions, i.e. by Western metrics, weak institutions, i.e. family networks, that are often critical in kick-starting developmental change. In other words, development agencies often not even able to see or understand contextually specific processes of change. Least of all, hold government's accounts to support them. So, uh, I thought Shamima Ali, uh, the head of the Fiji Women's Crisis Centre, arguably one of the most effective NGOs, uh, was recently quoted in a, in a development policy blog as saying, there are issues around corruption and wastage in the Pacific, yes, But Pacific people, if Pacific people were to have a greater say in the programming the aid we receive, we can then be held entirely responsible for
0: it. One of the commenters from the blog that you wrote said that perhaps international NGOs just need to get out of the way and wait for local organisations and local governments to ask for what they need. But what you've just said there is it's not a zero-sum game and there is still a really important role for international NGOs to play. So who's initiating the work?
1: Yeah, I found this comment um, really interesting. And look, I, and I agree with that the framing and the sentiment sometimes around localization is problematic. And I think, um, from our perspective, I, I prefer to actually say, you know what we're trying to do is the localization of humanitarian action, you know, it's not about us as if we were bestowing on Pacific partners, you know, the right to be local. Um, and also putting it in this broader framework of humanitarian action localization commitments is that it's it's, brought, it's situated within a, in a broader body of work, which we across the humanitarian sector are really trying to shift quite systematically. You know, the humanitarian system itself um, can be pretty highly structured, tends towards a one-size-fits-all. And, you know, in a lot of areas, the commitments we made a few years back around local humanitarian action, um, there hasn't been a lot of movement in terms of financing and other areas. So I do see that it's our role as, you know, Red Cross to work within this humanitarian system to change the rules as much as possible. And, you know, we do that as much as possible based on locally-led research and evidence so, it's not just as simple as standing aside. I do think that there's a lot more we can do from within the system, but it involves listening and and also shutting up as well.
2: I mean, I think of, of this work, uh, we, and I'm talking now about the Institute for Human Security and Social Change that I run at La Trape University, we feel we are part of an ecosystem and we occupy a particular place in that ecosystem and we have... A role, and we have a, 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 a action we can take and should take in that area where we have uh, some legitimacy, and I think we've got legitimacy to talk about the Australian aid sector, uh, Australian NGOs, etc. And that's what we do. I don't think we c- and and. And the response I put in to, to that question was Sarah Phillips at the University of Sydney has done some great work on showing that if we ignore how international factors influence local processes, we miss a huge trick. And therefore, I think that Australian researchers uh, should be pointing out the contradictions in aid policy and domestic policy. They should be interested in what's happening in Indigenous Australia. And they've got every right and a legitimacy to speak out on those issues, because those issues then impact Pacific Islands and create or diminish the space that Pacific Islanders have um, to pursue their own agendas.
0: You mentioned there the connection between domestic and international policy and the need to be mindful of what's happening in our own Indigenous communities here. That's a part of the COVID-19 debate that that we're not really hearing a lot of. Can you elaborate on that?
2: This uh, community of practice that we've been running for a while has, as said, people for, who work for the Central Lands Council and the Northern Lands Council, um, they've got exactly the same problem with lockdown on those communities uh, that... Uh, and colleagues in the Pacific, um, and they've got exactly the same questions about how do the voices of uh, those in indigenous communities uh, get heard in 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 these discussions on the coronavirus, but on policy more broadly. So it's quite fascinating to listen to um, the exchange between those groups, and because the Central Lands Council has worked for many years with communities who work using mining royalties to to run their own programs. Um, And the War Pre-Education Training Trust has just won a governance award in Australia for how uh, it has used those royalties for collective benefit rather than individual benefit. It's it's a fascinating story and one that colleagues in the Pacific are fascinated by. Um, And it's a very good example of what I think we could be learning collectively about uh, how people are addressing common problems, and so when I look at um, the queues outside Centrelink this week, I also think, well, Kenya, after the, the crisis in two thousand and eight, has been it's been using cash transfers by mobile phones for nearly ten years, and yet here I sit, look at uh, the queues outside Centrelink. I do wonder, could we be learning as much from elsewhere as we can offer?
0: Now, public donations to the international development sector are almost inevitably going to shrink as a result of COVID-19. We saw that in the GFC. We saw that in past disease outbreaks. You yourself also suggest that government aid will be cut. And more broadly, we can expect societies, not just Australia, but internationally, to turn very inwards and domestically focused. So isn't this not a transformation of international development, but perhaps the end of it?
1: Um, yeah. Look, I do think there is um, a concern, you know, within the sector around uh, the shrinking of donations, and you know, we're certainly um, holding out that there's not a further reduction in ODA. Um, but no, I don't think this is the end international development per se. You know, there's an ongoing need and value. international and regional engagement, sharing of knowledge, ongoing partnerships. Additionally, what COVID does show us is that pandemics don't respect borders, Um, and now is certainly not the time to look inward. Um, We can't, and Australia can't continue to be locked down forever either. Um, You know, so there's a very big call out from the international development community um, about that Australia does have, you know, an ongoing... uh, practical role to continue to support regional and global efforts, global efforts, and also an ongoing very strong moral obligation um, given the intense levels of vulnerability we are seeing at the moment.
2: Um, so yes, we're probably optimistic. Um, some might say we're naive, uh, vested interests uh, in powerful of the powerful. Um, we'll always try and maintain the status quo. And Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine. I keep going back to that. I went back to that yesterday, in the sense of saying, for those readers who, for those listeners who don't know, it's a great and powerful picture of how the powerful do seize opportunities and crises to 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 reinforce their position. but at times of crisis, the assumptions about what has gone before are often interrogated and thrown open, and previously unthinkable ideas occur. So gender roles, for example, often shift dramatically during war. Um, they often go back. Uh, so it's not that I think we're being uh or optimistic. Saying like, things change. If we don't act, if we don't think about this, if we're not talking about it, then the powerful will certainly cement their position uh, in, in ways that uh, are not going to be good for vulnerable people.
0: So, to build on that point, Fiona, you work for the Red Cross and Chris used to work for Oxfam. What do you think COVID-19 means for the Australian development sector, especially development NGOs? Is it just that people will be doing things differently or do you think we'll actually see a rationalisation with some NGOs going out of business or or merging with others?
1: I think in this area, I think rather than rationalisation, you know, what I'd really like to see is new ways of working, new forms of networks, more self-forming action, moving away from, you know, traditional development models. Um, I mean, as I said earlier, I do think civil society will, you know, remain an important part of international development and, you know, even our role becoming more critical to keep a focus on the of, on the impacts of COVID, on inequality and the impacts of women and children. Um, we, we already know that there's going to be very strong gendered impacts and we have a critical role to highlight this. I think the sector really needs to, you know, strike a healthy balance here. Um, that there will be changes, there'll be rationalisation. Um, we need to be fluid. Uh, we need to pivot and change models, but you know, keep an eye on you know the intense and critical development uh, dialogue and work that we um, undertake, and you know, continue to shine a spotlight on that.
2: I think a number of NGOs have been thinking about this change for a long time, and, and Fiona talked to some of that. So I, I don't want to. Say suggest that that there are a number of leaders in NGOs who are absolutely aware of the problems and are trying to do things about it. But I do think that in some senses NGOs are clearly going to have to work differently just by the force of circumstances. These pressures will play a role. So, I'm not sure whether rationalisation is a good or bad idea or whether it will happen, but I do think um, it would be great to see a a greater coming together on how NGOs are learning in real time about how they are adapting in the face of these challenges and what they are seeing in terms of the emergence of local initiatives. And that, that, I think we could be supporting uh, each other to create spaces to do that learning together, and ACFID are already talking about things along these lines. Secondly, I wonder if we can't see more pooling of resources in ways that might be more efficient. Do all agencies need their own finance, HR, monitoring evaluation teams? If they're under pressure, maybe sharing resources actually might be a good thing to do anyway, and it might be something that will reduce uh, some of their costs. And then I think it's about genuinely adopting narratives which contribute to a shift away from aid uh, as a as a narrative to talking about the common chat challenges faced in our region. Um, and it, as I said earlier, when Australia is thinking about the coronavirus, is it thinking regionally and collectively, or is it thinking about its own domestic interests?
0: And what about the international contracting business? Are we, are we still going to need expatriate experts? in contracting firms or is that way of working now past
1: its expiry date um yeah quite frankly at the moment it's hard to see us going back to a system of large numbers of expatriate staffs you know whether that's the managing contractors or ingos um again i don't see it as a zero-sum game you know amcs will you know have an ongoing role it's going to change though alongside um Around, alongside Australian NGOs. Um, here I don't think the answer is necessarily um, just to move to, you know, local staff, you know. Um, it's really about both of us grappling with what this means in terms of, you know, different different models and, and different approaches. How do we change the power dynamics you know, what are more localised forms of financing? Um, so, we're both in for a rocky road. Um, I don't see it as either or. Um, and hopefully, you know, this actually brings us together in, in in looking at new ways of engaging with development across managing contractors and the NGO community. Part of my problem with the way we sometimes talk about this is, um, you know, should – should
2: how will NGOs – how will it play out for NGOs, managing contractors, government, civil, local civil society – Um, which is better Um, and I think I'm part of something called the developmental leadership uh, program which does research on collective action and what that shows time and time and time again is that these kinds of questions demand collective action coalitions, alliances of all of these groups the important thing being that they are locally created and driven and it's the mix of actors that is important to solve particular problems. It's not anyone being able to go it alone. So, I just wonder whether if we could be thinking seriously about locally led processes that are supported sensitively by the by a tailored mix of actors, we might get to a more effective uh, and impactful way of working. And I think we look particularly in that in that program at. A programme called Gender and Politics in Practice, um, which showed that the the agency of local people and their capacity to act to act is crucial um, because they got the legitimacy and the local connections to exploit cracks in social norms and to push for uh, shifts in power uh, based on acute local understanding. Um, but they were supported in very strategic ways by outsiders. Uh, they led the process. So, uh, that for me is perhaps the more interesting question than whether it's contractors or NGOs or or others. I think it's going to be a mix, but it needs to be tailored to the problems we're trying to solve.
0: Now, to go more globally, is there a risk that some governments, especially in the Pacific, will require bailouts uh, as a result of the economic consequences of COVID-19, whether those bailouts come from Australia or China? As their economies are uh, really impacted by the cessation of tourism or the collapse of commodity prices, might the influence of powerful countries, whether east or west, actually increase?
1: Oh, look, I do suspect there will be, you know, um, a move to, you know, forms of financing and budget support and, you know, shoring up some of the liquidity in Pacific countries, just as there are in a number of other Countries and this may well bring in a broader group of donors, um, you know, not just traditional OEC DAC donors. Um, but in this changing context, I do think you know there are you know, also changing rules, and again, just wanting to emphasise here that what emerges should not be old rules or old financing models, Um, but really, again, this is an opportunity for Pacific governments and civil society to really take control of uh, the dialogue um, and, you know, look to... Uh, you know, Pacific-led initiatives here. Um, You know, in in this space, I think the game has changed quite a bit in the Pacific. um, And, you know, there's a strong role, you know, for national actors, but also the regional institutions um, can have a really strong role in these negotiations um, around PIFs or, you know, around technical discussions with SPC. Um, I do think, uh, it, it's a bit of a different game now and that uh, Pacific actors will, um, you know, have a much stronger uh, role in what this um, uh, new forms of financing may look like.
2: Um, I think we may all need bailouts at the end of this. Um, and, of course, there's a lot of commentary about how China might be manoeuvring to be seen as a benevolent actor showing a global leadership compared to the, to the US. Um it's also interesting, the idea of a universal basic income is now back on the table. It's been on the back burner for the last couple of years. But it's back on the back on the table. And if we were to see a bigger structural response to, to the questions of why we're in this mess in the first place, and if universal, forms of universal basic income, which, we're, frankly, we're not far away from that in Australia – you might see a completely different way of thinking about financing for our region. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I'm saying this is how opportunities create maybe different ways of opening up a discussion on other ways of thinking about financing than those that we have uh, thought about hitherto.
0: Who's put universal basic income back on the table?
2: It's the commentariat in Out there during this crisis, is certainly talking about it. But there's some there's some economists talking about it online. There's the fact that the the amounts we're talking about in terms of uh, how uh, unemployed people are going to be paid, students are going to be paid, are ramping up into quite significant sums. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm saying it's I think an interesting way of how assumptions are being. Challenged and like the idea of the Tobin tax went away for 20 years and then came back as a Robin Hood tax uh, 10 years ago. Are we going to see changes on that level? I don't know. And
0: now, as a final thought, you don't get much of a sense about how bad this crisis is going to be for the Pacific and for developing countries generally um, beyond the economic consequences that we've just skimmed the surface of. We do see China sending their medical. Teams around the world already. We don't, to the best of my knowledge, have Australian doctors going overseas yet. What might be the immediate response that Australia can have to show our support to the Pacific?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, from Red Cross perspective, uh, there's been a big move um, from a Chinese Red Cross to provide, you know, doctors, uh, other sorts of um, technical assets into a range of countries. I and mean, it just shows Um, how different relationships are going to be um, given this the the impact of this virus and it's a real change to partnerships Um, it's going to move you know it's going to move us into a much more equitable conversation and less of this north-south sort of dialogue Um, I think for us You know, I certainly don't want to underplay the impacts here at all. You know, as I said, we're all very worried and, you know, even today we're looking at the data coming in from Cox's Bazaar, and other reports um, we are going to see different forms of action you know I don't think it's just going to be in terms of this surge you know the traditional humanitarian surge of actors across the sector and across the government um, we'll be looking at a whole range of, of different modalities um, different forms of financing and you know really now is an opportunity to do this I think you know in greater partnership like I said with other donors and with Pacific actors so assuming all Pacific
0: island countries will either require a bailout or very substantial economic assistance and their health systems are likely to be overwhelmed and and possibly collapse as a result of COVID-19. Is there any way that developing countries come out of this better than before?
2: I think probably not. It's liable to be devastating. Um, But that doesn't mean either giving up on trying to mitigate the worst of this or ignoring what got us here in the first place.
1: Look, I think you know, and this has serious um, health, uh, social, economic consequences. You know, we're very, we're very much at the start of it. I don't think anyone has a crystal ball that will determine um, where we're going to end and uh, where we're going to end. Um, and again, like I say, you know, we don't want to underplay the impacts at all. I guess the point is this: this, this opportunity, this sort of juncture. Um, Often with, you know, really disruptive processes, you know, such as disasters, it does provide an opportunity to really think through what approaches and different systems can look like. Um, and that's really where Chris and I were going uh, with the blog, you know. Um, it's no way to underplay um, the, you know, development humanitarian impact of it and, you know, certainly take the point here, there's there's a need for our voice in this dialogue very strongly around these sorts of humanitarian impacts. Thanks, Fiona.
0: Any final words or thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: I think what's really struck me is that, um, you know, across across the sector, that we are all grappling with these challenges Um And, you know, you are seeing quite new forms of social organisation developing um, across the Red Cross movement. Um, You know, I'm seeing uh, sort of uh, emergence of a lot of digital self-help groups, which is really interesting, Um, you know. Checking in on whether people um, uh, are needing, you know, assistance. There's new forms of volunteering. Um, some really interesting new groups of youth volunteering happening in Australia as well. So within this sort of disruption, you know, there are new forms of volunteering, new forms of self-led um, social mobilisation, and it's those sorts of things I think are really important um, to keep an eye on as they do offer new opportunities for development.
0: That was Fiona Tarpy and Chris Roche. After producing this episode, I had some of my own reflections to share. I agree that this is a critical juncture, not just for the development sector, but for the world. I know for me, much of the work I was scheduled to do this year won't go ahead as planned, like many of you. This pandemic has created unprecedented new challenges, but it's also created space to reconsider how we're working and if we're having the impact we want to have. There are three key points that stand out for me. First, flexibility will be crucial for people and organisations in the development sector. The more flexible and adaptable we can be, the more we can leverage this unprecedented humanitarian crisis to grow and strengthen our partnerships and our programs. Secondly, our narrative must change. Investing in health systems is a co-investment that benefits us domestically just as much as it benefits our neighbours in the Pacific. Pandemics don't stay within borders and any disease outbreak in our region is a threat to us all, as COVID-19 has proven. If ever there were a time to realise that aid and development are for the collective good, it is now. Thirdly, local communities have always been the first responders. This is an opportunity for local responders to reclaim power and ownership and enter into more equitable dialogues with international donors and NGOs. Localisation isn't a choice anymore and whilst we can never underestimate the dire health, economic and social consequences that COVID-19 is already having, we are likely to come out of this much better at understanding how local actors respond to emergencies, which will undoubtedly benefit our sector. That's all from me. Please join the discussion and let us know your top takeaways. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. This is Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. See you next week.